Welcome everybody to Mill City Church. We're so glad to have you here. Why don't you find your chair? We'll continue our worship together. Would you say a prayer with me as we look at the scripture this morning? Jesus, we thank you that whenever we're gathered together, your presence is with us. We sense your presence with us today. Jesus, we can't really do anything without you. We want to be people who follow you, who sense your leading in our everyday lives, not just on Sunday mornings. We want to be people who become more and more like you the more we mature in our faith. We want to be a community of people who improves your reputation in the world and points people to you. So just give us ears to hear, God, what you would have us, uh, what you would have us hear from you today. Give us open hearts to listen to your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So a few years ago, I was in the Spokane Airport. Anybody been to Spokane, Washington? Good town. Biggest town between Minneapolis and Seattle, according to the people in Spokane, Washington. So I'm in Spokane, it's early, and I need a, a, a ride to where I'm going. I'm doing a training for some church folks, and a guy picks me up in, his, in the lift cab. So we're, we're driving, and he asks me what I'm doing there, and I say, oh, I, I came to work with some church leaders for a couple days. And he just lights up, and he, he says, oh, I just became a Christian a few months ago. And, uh, and then he starts telling me about his church, and how he loves his church, and he's involved in his church, and... Of course, they immediately recruited him to help in children's ministry. That's what he told me about. Uh, but then, he, then after he got done with that part of his story, he started telling me uh, how becoming a Christian had changed his lift driving. He talked about this simple practice that he got from somewhere where he would pray for the next person to sit in the back of his car as he was going to pick people up. And then he was telling me, you wouldn't believe the kinds of conversations that I've gotten myself into since I've been praying for the next person who's going to sit, or people, who's going to sit in the back of my car. And he told me several stories about how amazing all the connections and the opportunities he got to, to, to share what he had learned about who Jesus was to him with random people. And what's incredible about this interaction with him is it, it, it didn't seem like he needed to go to years and years of Sunday school training to figure out immediately that this relationship that he had found with Jesus Christ applied to his work life. He didn't just say, God is showing up in my life when I'm with these kids serving on Sunday mornings, although that was important to him. He also said, Every single day of my work life is now different because I'm a follower of Jesus. And here's how. Here are the stories of how that is playing out. Every single day, we get a chance to partner with God in shaping the world through our work. Every single day, we get a chance to partner with God in shaping the world through our work. This is one of the ways that God transforms the world that we live in by empowering us through the Holy Spirit to do work that God cares about in the way that God wants the work done. Now, every single day, every one of you faces dilemmas of different kinds, large and small in your work. Whether your work is paid work or unpaid work, whatever you're putting your resources and energy towards, 
you face dilemmas every single day. And those dilemmas, some of them are, are personal choices that you have to make about how to do work and when to do it and with whom. Some are big picture ethical questions that you're wrestling with through your work and the organizations and companies that you're a part of. But every single day there are ethical decisions that we are making in our work that are uh, about good and evil, that are shaping the world that we live in day in and day out. And so as we've been in this series called God at Work the last few weeks, we've been talking about different ways that God works through our work and, and influences us and other people we're in relationship with and the world that we live in. There are four main ways in this series that we're trying to talk about the way God is active in our work. Here's, here's what they are. The first one is through relationships, people that you interact with in whatever work settings you are in, God's spirit and God's presence, and you as a follower of Jesus have an opportunity to influence others' lives and have them influence you in those relationships. Through the ethics of the work that you do, which is what we're going to focus on today, the ethical parts of your work, the, the, um, the decisions that you're making about what is good and what is not good, what is right and what is not right in your life of work have a tremendous impact on the world. That God uses our work to shape our person and character. Last Sunday, we had a panel of people who were sharing stories from all kinds of different industries about how they had personally been shaped by their work and how God had shaped them. And then finally, the inherent value of the work that you are doing, whatever work is for you, that God can use that thing or those things that you are making and creating or offering to other ones or serving people to shape their lives in your life and the life of the world. So there's these four key areas that, that we want to talk about how God is at work. But today we're going to focus on ethics and the ethical considerations of your work. My shorthand for that is just to say that God shapes the world through your work, okay? That's the big idea for today. God shapes the world for your work. And if that's true, I want to have one caveat I want to put in the front of this sermon, and that is, that means every follower of Jesus is, say it with me, in ministry. I would like to, all due respect to my fellow clergy people, I would like to break down the barrier between who gets to be considered in ministry and who does not? I would like to stop referring to people who get paid to be Christians as those who are in ministry and those who do not get paid to be Christians somehow outside of ministry. Every single person who is following Jesus has a ministry. Amen? Every single person who is following Jesus has empowerment from the Holy Spirit to be part of the work that God is doing in the world that God loves. Amen? So, question for this morning. How does God want to use us, use our work, to shape the world? How does God want to use our work to shape the world? I want to talk about that this morning. I want to use a text in 1 Peter today. If you have a Bible, you want to turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. Uh, the book of Peter, written by Peter, is to a group of people who are trying to figure out how to live out their Christian faith, their, their newly found Christian identity, in a community of people that are not only Jewish people, they include Jewish people, but aren't restricted to Jewish people, and in contexts and communities where their faith is not readily accepted all the time. They're seen as sort of oddball people following some new religion that 
may or may not be threatening to the rest of the people in those communities. And so that's the context for Peter writing to these folks. I want you to watch for the parallels that Peter draws between the people of Israel, the story of the people of Israel in what we call the Old Testament, and the emerging identity of the early church that Peter is writing to and is forming as this book is being written. Uh, here's, here's a framework for thinking about uh, how to pay attention to this as we read this text, okay? So he's going to use some phrases like uh, the chosen people and the royal priesthood. And if you look on this, um, this outline, you'll see that on the left-hand side there, the people of Israel have all the same language used to describe them in the Old Testament. They are chosen by God. They are set apart from the nations for God's purposes. They are called by God to be a blessing, a conduit of blessing from God to the rest of the world, to all the other nations. They are called to be a witness to a particular God, the only true God, the, the one God, as we read in the Deuteronomy text a few minutes ago, they are to be witnesses, to verbalize their belief in this one God called Yahweh. And they are in covenant relationship with God. God has established a, um, um, a covenant understanding of relationship with the people of Israel and said, I am committed to you. I will be your God and you will be my people. Now, when we read this text in a second, you're going to see that Peter is trying to use the same kind of language to communicate to this early church that's now not only Jewish people, includes Jewish people, but isn't limited to them, and uses all the same sorts of things with a slight turn to include faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior now. He says things like, you are chosen by God through faith in Jesus. You are sent to do good in the world. You are called to witness to God in Christ. You have a covenant relationship with God that's now centered on God's mercy, not your ability to hold up your end of the bargain. And so I want you just to keep this framework in mind as we read this, uh, this section from 1 Peter chapter 2. All right, starting in verse 1. He says, Therefore, new church, rid yourselves of all malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, Crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now 
you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. The early part of this chapter, Peter is making an argument for Jesus as the cornerstone of a new temple. The temple being understood as the place where God lives, the place where God's presence is. And even though that Jesus was rejected by certain religious leaders and others, it is now the cornerstone of the building. Have you ever seen one of those cornerstones where they have etched in it the, the date that the building was built and maybe some other language to help you understand? That's what they're referring to. The stone that every other stone depends upon. That Jesus has become this cornerstone of a, a new temple and the people who believe and follow Jesus are also living stones being built up into a spiritual house that God's presence will live in in order that other people may come to experience God's presence through a community of people, not a physical building anymore. He's using all this temple language to help the new church understand that they as a community of people are the place where God's presence is going to reside. On the cornerstone, built on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. And when we get to verses 9 and 10, you hear a lot of this language that I, I, I told you to pay attention to. You're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Peter is trying to reinforce for them their identity as they're still trying to figure out a little bit who they are. And he says to them, here's who you are. You are God's people now. Doesn't matter where you came from or who your family is. Your faith in Jesus Christ has incorporated you into God's family and made you a citizen of the kingdom of God. And citizenship in the kingdom of God is based primarily on the mercy and love of God given to anybody who will receive it, regardless of whether they deserve it or not. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. Once you were not the people of God, but now you have received God's mercy in Jesus Christ. You've been forgiven and incorporated into God's family. And that is now your identity. In verses 11 and 12 then, he says, in light of who you are, in light of your identity, it is so important to read scripture and remember that most of the time the authors are trying to say, in light of who you are, here's how I recommend you live your life. And the reason for remembering that constantly is because sometimes if you leave the in light of who you are part off, you get another set of legalistic rules to follow in reading scripture. But you always have to hear it as in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, where everyone is accepted simply by faith, not by anything that they have done. In light of that transformation in your life, here's now how you can live, how you get to live as a result. In verses 11 and 12, it says, in light of who you are, here's how you should live your life. You should recognize that you are no longer a citizen of a world that is defined by sin with all the values and competitiveness and judgments that come with that sin-fallen world. You are now a citizen of a totally different kingdom, one where God is reigning, Jesus is on the throne, love and mercy are the guiding principles 
of this kingdom. Giving oneself up for the sake of others is what our leader has demonstrated as the definition of love. The things that matter most to some of the people that you work with are not the same things that matter the most to Jesus. The the things that matter the most to the organization that you work for may not be the same things that matter the most to Jesus. And so when you go to work every day, it's so important for you to remember as you're going to work, this is who I am. In light of who I am as a follower of Jesus, saved by God's grace, I don't have to go along with whatever narrative everyone else is going along with. I have the ability and the privilege and the responsibility to live a different life because of what Jesus has done for me. In light of God's mercy, avoid the stuff that takes you away from living in God's kingdom, that wars against your soul, the NIV says, and step into the work that demonstrates the reality of God's kingdom. I like the way that Eugene Peterson puts this in the message version of the Bible. So let's read that from from 9 to 12. He says, but you are the ones chosen by God, chosen for the high calling of priestly work, right? None of this, some people are ministers and others aren't. Everyone is called. Chosen to be a holy people, God's instruments to do God's work and speak out for God to tell others of the night and day difference that Jesus has made for you. From nothing to something, from rejected to accepted. Friends, this world is not your home, so don't make yourselves cozy in it. Don't indulge your ego at the expense of your soul. Live an exemplary life among the natives so that your actions will refute their prejudices. Wow, isn't that a powerful line? Live an exemplary life among the natives so that your actions will refute their prejudices. Then they'll be won over to God's side and be there to join in the celebration when Jesus arrives. When we think about our work, we have to remember, A, who we are in Jesus Christ, and B, that the kind of work we're doing, the way in which we do our work, is just as important as whatever comes out of our work. That we would live such exemplary lives among the pagans, the natives, it's all just a way to say the people around you who may not believe the same as you. If you would live such a life among the people that everyone would have to at minimum take notice And in a perfect world, they would say, there must be something to this God that these people believe in. In an age where the reputation of the church is sometimes getting worse and worse, don't we desperately need a theology that helps us see our daily work life as one of the places where God uses us to reshape that reputation and change the world that God loves? Don't we need that? Let's talk really practically for just a few minutes about how God actually uses us to shape the world through our work. These two lines I'm going to build off of in this text. Live such good lives, excuse me, that we would abstain from sinful desires which wage against our soul and that we would live such good lives 
that other people would take notice and praise God. Here are some both personal and systemic ways that I think this might be playing out. And these are just the beginning of lists that you can add to. I would love it if you would add to the lists that I'm offering you. So on the, on the more personal or individualistic side, think about how living such a good life and avoiding vices might come to play in the way that honesty, you live honestly in your work life. I have worked both in churches and not in churches in what we might call secular spaces. It seems really commonplace in many work environments to just lie about stuff. Does anybody else know that? Like people lying about things that maybe don't even seem that consequential, but it's almost expected that you would kind of fudge the numbers a little bit. That you would just add or round off or say something that somebody wants to hear even if everybody knows that that's not what was said in the meeting. It seems like lying can be a space where maybe we could live in a countercultural way. I have an employee at my dad's company that had just come to work for them uh, a little while ago, a few months ago. And after just a few months of working at my dad's company, he said to me, he goes, I can't tell you how much better I feel at night because I'm not lying to customers every day. I'm not lying to them about what they, what they need in order to get them to buy something that is way more than they actually need. I feel so much better about my person at night because I'm not lying at work every day. For some of us, we might not even know that we're doing it, but honesty has kind of slipped away from our work life. Maybe that's one area you could pay attention to. Another one that is talked about later in, in 1 Peter 2 is our relationship with our boss. How, how many of you love your boss and wish you ate dinner at your boss's house every evening? Look, there's three of you. Hey, boss-employee relationships are tricky, right? Scripture starts to talk about how do you respect people above you even if they don't treat you very well? And how do we embody the suffering of Jesus Christ when that happens? I used to work, and my first job out of college, for whatever reason, everybody trashed the boss all the time. Like, it was a rite of passage. You had to start trashing the boss in order to be accepted by all the rest of the people. And I was 22, 23 years old, and I just did it. I just started ripping on the boss with everybody else because it seemed like that was the thing to do. I even once sent an email to my boss ripping on my boss accidentally, <laughs> which I don't recommend. What, if it, what would it be like for you to think about your work life and your relationship with the people who are in authority above you and have them, whether you get along, whether you see eye to eye, see that your Christian faith is influencing that relationship? What would it be like in the area of creating conflict with coworkers or even with customers or users or whatever your industry is? What if, what if people recognized that we told the truth and had grace towards folks that we worked with instead of talking about people behind their back and trying to make, make things happen the way we want them without actually honoring somebody with a direct conversation? Does anybody ever sense there might be a sideways conversation going on at your workplace? A couple of you. What if we communicated more directly the way that Scripture tells us we ought to create conflict with people? Maybe that would make a difference. Here's some structural and systemic areas. One is just, where does the money go from the organization or the company that you work for? 
And whatever voice you have, some of you have more influence in this area than others, but what if we as Christians started to demand that money and profits and things that came from our work, our enterprises, started to go to things that we thought God cared about? We got to celebrate a couple months ago the largest donation ever to the Sheridan Story, which is a a weekend food backpack program that we helped start a number of years ago. Over $300,000 in one of those giant checks was given to the Sheridan Story to help feed kids by a big corporation because some people who worked in the corporation used their influence to help the company see that this was a worthy cause. Maybe God wants to take money from places that aren't even distinctly Christian organizations and funnel it towards things that God cares about through your work, do you think? What about access to jobs? Whether you work in HR or not, most people find their next job through the people they know. Have you heard that before? So what if when a new job came up in the company that you work for, you thought to yourself, who might not get invited to apply for this job that might be great. Maybe they're even from a group of people that's been marginalized in one way or another and isn't in the same social network to know that this opportunity exists. And I could send them the post of the job and help them apply. What if Christian people living out their, their ethical convictions in workplaces help to open up the space for people who might not otherwise have an opportunity to work in a really great job through your invitation? What about treatment of the environment? What if we thought about the ways in which our workplaces and our companies can help care for the earth that God created? Are we doing our work in a way that makes that possible, that asks the companies and organizations that we work for to continue to improve the way in which they treat the environment in the way they're doing their work? What if people who are Christians who worked in different settings focused on the good of the people, uh, the users, the customers, the people who are using the things that you're creating instead of only thinking about the company or the organization's best. I was, once, I was in a meeting recently that said, uh, a senior level person said, you'd be amazed at how much better business is when you start to put the priority of the customer first. That sounds simple, right? What if you fought for, for times where maybe things are gonna go in a direction that aren't actually going to help the people that you're serving and say, let's not do that even if it makes us more money. Let's do what's best for the people we're serving. There's another example of a systemic ethical contribution that you could make. These lists both go on and on, right? But what I'm hoping you take away from this is that you could look at this and say, in both personal ways and systemic ways, where are the opportunities that God wants to use my work to shape the world towards the things that God loves, that God cares about? You can make much better lists than I can, but hopefully this will get you started. I want to say again, how, capital H, capital O, capital W, how we do our work matters is just as important as what we do. There's a saying in the marketplace, the ends justify the the means. Have you heard that one? That doesn't work with Christian theology. And, And in some ways, Christian theology suggests the exact opposite, that the means justifies the ends. The way in which Jesus gives up his life doesn't accomplish any of the ends that any of his followers or anybody around him was looking for. 
But he knew by the way in which he offered up his life for the sake of others, he would achieve an end that nobody else could even see. How we do our work is shaping the world and the lives of people around us. So don't get sucked into believing that if you accomplish certain ends, how you got there doesn't matter. It absolutely matters. This scripture places emphasis not only on living good lives among people, but then it says, so that, right, for the purpose of other people giving glory to God. So let me finish by saying that I, I don't think we can read this text in 1 Peter and think about the ethical implications of our work without also thinking about how are we going to tell people why we're doing what we're doing? How are we going to tell people that our Christian faith is influencing the way in which we're doing our work? It's very hard for people to glorify God if they don't know that you believe in God. It's very hard for people to glorify God if they never can connect the dots between the way in which you're doing your work and the Christian faith that you have in your life. So here's a super simple way forward if you're looking for a first step. What if you were to say things like this out loud in your workplace from time to time at the risk of feeling dumb or feeling humiliated or being embarrassed? What if you were to say something like, because of my Christian faith background, I feel like we should be honest with our customers. Because of my Christian faith, I want to respect my boss even when things aren't going well. Because of my Christian faith, I want the money our company gives away to go to things I think God cares a lot about. Because of my Christian faith, I think it's important we consider how our work impacts the environment. Because I'm a follower of Jesus, I think the new jobs we have open ought to be available to people from a wide variety of backgrounds. Do you see how if you just put, because I'm a Christian, in the front of a statement, it might help people connect some dots? That's all we maybe have to do. Many of you are already living this way ethically, and maybe the challenge from the text this morning isn't that you need to change the way that you're ethically doing your work, but it might mean that you need one or two sentences that will allow someone else to glorify God for the reputation that you've already built for Jesus through your life. But you got to say it out loud. And you can say it in a way that respects everybody else's beliefs, that respects everybody else's perspectives. You're just owning authentically your own approach to your work and saying, because of who I am, because of why Jesus matters to me, this is what I think, this is what I do. And the text says, people will glorify God on the day that Jesus visits us. Let me invite the band to come back up. Let me invite uh, Pastor Donna to come up to introduce communion. I just have one more story to tell you. I've got a friend on the West Coast who owns a window company, a small company. They make really high, great windows, you know, crafted windows and sell them all, all around the world. And I was meeting with him a few months ago. And he was telling me about a period of time in the last few years where the company wasn't doing well and he wasn't able to get a paycheck himself for many months. And he had to sort of scramble to cover his personal financial situation in order to not take a paycheck. And I said, why did you, why did you do that? And he said, because this is my ministry. Because God has called me to figure out ways to make sure, if I can, at, at all costs, 
for everyone else in this company to get a paycheck. And if they can't, then I won't. And I, I said to him, would you ever tell that story in your church? And he kind of looked at me sideways. I said, that's the kind of thing we've got to celebrate. People who could be just taking their own money and firing people and laying people off, instead, because of their Christian faith, are living a different ethic and are providing for people when there wasn't even really money to provide for them. You might not own a company, and you might not be able to make that sort of influence, but I guarantee you that if you start your day like the Lyft driver and say, God, show me how my work can shape the world you love today, some opportunity will come to you. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, we love you, and we thank you that no matter what kind of work we're doing, paid or unpaid, you include us. You draw us into the love that you have for this world, and you want us to help you shape it. Open our eyes, God. Open our hearts. Open our ears to see those opportunities as we go about our week this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.